Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast, where we focus on how authors found success, looking at strategies that have taken them to the top of the bestseller charts, as well as what they've learned from their mistakes. Because being an indie author is more than knowing the latest marketing trend. It's about being innovative and creative and learning from your mistakes. Welcome to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. I'm Sarah Rosette. And I'm Jamie Albright. And this week on the show, we have Thomas Umstead Jr. Yes. And it was a phenomenal interview. You guys are going to just walk away with your with little birds swimming around your head mm-hmm. or just flying around your head. Because it's a lot of great information from him. Thomas is the um, the host of the Novel Marketing Podcast. And it's a podcast that Sarah and I have listened to for a long time. I think it's the longest running marketing podcast. Mm-hmm. Um, and he is super smart. And just he applies a lot of business principles mm-hmm. to the marketing of books and uh, his you know, courses yeah. and all of that that he does. But it's really such a good interview. Smart yeah, he guy. has a different perspective than mm-hmm. a lot of the mm-hmm. writing marketing podcast. Mm-hmm. He's coming at it and talking and looking at selling books and publishing uh, more from a business point of view, yes. like he said, and that makes yeah. a difference. And it's, yeah. it's new and a little, he's talking about the same things mm-hmm. that other podcasts and, and authors are talking about, but from a different mm-hmm. point of view. And we also talk about, um, he had some really creative ideas, unusual yes. things to try. So yes. there's some innovative marketing stuff. And then we talked a little bit about the inspirational market. He mm-hmm. a lot mm-hmm. of inspirational authors. Mm-hmm. So we covered and a lot. <laughs> we talk about scarcity and ubiquity. Ubiquity. Y'all, I heard the podcast that he talked about <laughs> that on. Then I had to go like, listen. Well, I did. I was going to look it up, but I was right. I was walking and so I had to listen really closely to get the context of what ubiquity means. So, yeah. Um, yeah, but it's a really great, it really is so smart and mm-hmm. just a great way to think about your books and your, mm-hmm. your intellectual property. And mm-hmm. yeah, he's, he's a smart guy. Yeah. So what's been so, going on with you? Um, this week I have been working on the um, journal, mm-hmm. the Mr. Reader's journal and planner. Oh, wow. Uh-huh. And I've learned a lot about mm-hmm. this. And <laughs> we'll thing, have to do a podcast and you can tell well, us. I will summarize real quickly. One thing I've learned is that Ingram Spark does not like journals. Mm. Doesn't like or things that don't have a lot that that are empty pages, repeated text. Mm. So this, I mean, I customized it. The interior is a special design. And apparently that used to be fine. And you, as long as it was customized and it wasn't just like 250 blank pages. Right. But apparently it's not now. Um, I can't get mine through approval at Ingram Spark. So I went with Lulu and Mm -hmm. I hope that that will allow it to be distributed to other places. So I'm going to do Amazon, but then I'm also going to do, so I've had to do, you know, upload, learn a new system and it hasn't been hard at all. It's just been different takes mm-hmm. time. And then I wanted to order copies to see how they looked. Mm-hmm. And of course, I had to pay expedited shipping to get them mm-hmm. here. Mm-hmm. But I, um, surprisingly, I actually like the copies I got from Lulu better than I like the ones from Amazon. Oh, well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. so I finally got everything in. And I'll probably release it, I think, probably next week. Because mm-hmm. um, I'm not going to do a pre-order because you can't do a pre-order on mm-hmm. print only. 
can't do mm-hmm. it um, through Amazon. So uh, for print products or mm-hmm. I can't, I can't get that. Apparently, you know, some people can, yeah. but um, so yeah, so that'll come out. So we've been working on that mm-hmm. and um, we moved, you know, so we're doing some home improvements stuff. Yes. The office that used to be, the room used to be a living room and mm-hmm. we're, making it into an office because the mm. formal living room people mm. don't use as much anymore. So now mm. it's my office. It didn't have doors on it. So mm. we're installing doors and that has been a process. Because yeah, French doors, uh-huh. they're beautiful, but they're a work in progress. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> right now I have, they're in, but uh, we have some hole, holes in the drywall and stuff. <laughs> you had to expose it to get them yeah. in. Yeah. So that's, oh, that's good. That's yeah. good. You. Oh, well, I met my daughters this week. So um, I'm going through my edits during nap time and at night. And um, thankfully, the kids sleep, you know, for about three hours during the in the afternoon. So I'm getting those done. I should finish those tonight and uh, get it to my proofreader tomorrow. And then, but I still have to write a blurb. So until that gets done, I'm kind of dead in the water for just a few days hopefully the blurb I'm, I'm having a lot of trouble with it which is a little bit unusual at least usually mm-hmm. I can get something but mm-hmm. I'm just having a real hard time and I don't know if it's because I'm here and I can't really you know hard to focusing yeah, yeah hard to focus um but I doubt that's it because like I said I mean there, there's long periods of time where they're asleep um I'm just having a little hard time with that um so we'll see you know I told myself last night you know people people want the book but nobody's waiting on the book right (laughs) I'm okay I I will be okay I'm just trying to uh, not stress myself out and to not put undue pressure on myself because it doesn't help at all Mm -hmm. right and I guess that's it. Not really much else. I'm just working. I forgot one thing. I was on a Facebook live with Plotter this week and the replay is available. And I'll link to that in the group. And um, it's on, it's on cozy mysteries and how I outline. And there will now, I think by the time this comes out, there'll be a template in Plotter for based on my, how to outline a cozy mystery. So if you have Plotter, you can get in there and, get that template and modify it to fit your book. So we have that going on this week. And then we also need to do a question of the week. Oh, yes. Okay. Go ahead. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I was thinking maybe we should ask what um, innovative thing have you done to market your book? Something unusual or different that you've tried and found success with. That's great. That sounds oh. awesome. Okay. So right. in the Facebook group. That is, yes. And now let's get on with the podcast. All right, here we go. Well, today we're really excited to talk with Thomas Umstadt Jr. Hi, Thomas. How are you? Hi, I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're so excited you're here. We've been actually wanting to get you on for a while. So we're very excited. Yeah. So let me read your bio. As an award-winning speaker, Thomas Umstadt teaches creative people all over the world how to build their platforms, sell more books, and change the world with writing worth talking about. As a podcaster, he hosts the Novel Marketing Podcast and the Christian Publishing Show. He currently serves as CEO of Author Media. 
That's right. So, uh, Thomas, tell us, how did you get started working with riders? So I first went to a writer's conference while I was still in college. Mm -hmm. I was convinced that I had a book that the world needed to read. (laughs) (laughs) My great uh, wealth of life experience. And I'm sitting in a class on marketing. And Mm -hmm. they were talking, the speaker was up there and she's like, you got to build a website. You got to have a blog. And this is 2007. Mm -hmm. And all of these authors are looking around like, how on earth do we do that? And the lady was like, well, just find a five-year-old in your neighborhood to, to build you one. <laughs> that was her advice. And it was just totally unhelpful advice, but she had lucked right. out like her, some neighborhood high schooler had built her website for yeah. cheap and it had allowed her to get a publishing deal and it set her off on this uh, path of success. Uh, but that high schooler was not taking on other clients and he wanted to go to college. And so everyone's looking around terrified. And I'd been building websites since I was a kid. Because I, I was just that kind of nerd. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I was building them in high school myself. And so here I am in college and I'm dazzled by being with all these real authors. And so I turned to the lady next to me who was in my area. I'm like, I'll build your website. No problem. She's like, you will? <laughs> and so I built her website uh, for free um, just, just to have an author friend. Because this is my mm-hmm. first conference. I didn't mm-hmm. know anybody or know anything. And she she loved the website. She started recommending uh, me to all of her friends. I started charging them. Uh, money to build websites. And so the next time I went to a writer's conference, it took a brochure that I printed up of like, here are my prices. And I had people writing me checks for websites, wow. sight unseen. They'd never met me before, <laughs> before they left the conference, they'd written me a check. Now, part of it was because I was way underpriced and didn't know it, but they mm-hmm. did. And they're like, I mm-hmm. want, I want to hire you before <laughs> you realize how cheap your prices are. Um, and there was interest in my book, but not near the interest as there was in my services serving mm-hmm. authors. And so that is what started me on the path of serving authors rather than writing books myself. And I never did publish that book, mm. <laughs> but I did build many websites for authors in the coming years. And I even started a company and a bunch of people working for me, building websites for authors all over the world. And yeah, that's how I got started. That's great. Uh, that is amazing. Yeah, that is amazing. <laughs> that shows the uh, desperation of authors. We don't really usually want to deal with the tech side. So it worked out well then. Yeah. Well, um, so you've mentioned a little bit about uh, wanting to write a book. Do you have um, aspirations to write fiction? Um, I know you've written a nonfiction book. Um, I tell my children stories uh, mm-hmm. often about a dog named Dennis and a kitty cat named Katie. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so um, my wife has been encouraging me to do something with these Dennis and Katie stories. Uh, right now, they're just a dad telling stories mm-hmm. to the kids. But I've, I've actually been thinking about turning them into a fiction podcast. Where oh, cool. episode yeah. is a short little story about Dennis and Katie and their adventures with their yuppie pet parents. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, and maybe they'll turn into a book. In terms of a full-length novel, um, I... I don't have any any plans in the near term for something like that. Mm-hmm. Writing a novel takes a lot of training. And uh, mm-hmm. having worked with authors all these years as an agent and a consultant and marketing director, I know that it's not just something that you do for fun. You have to really study to, to get good at it. And yeah. I respect the craft enough to not tell myself that just because I've been doing the marketing makes me qualified to do the actual storytelling. <laughs> well, I think that's good to know yourself. But you did have a very successful fiction book, though. I mean, nonfiction book, correct? I did. That uh, emerged out of my blog. So I wrote a blog mm-hmm. post about uh, dating, and uh, that blog post went viral. 
So mm-hmm. I used to be this big advocate. I, I came from the homeschool community mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. Uh, ran a website called Practical Courtship for a time. And then I realized that courtship didn't work and I wanted to go on dates. But before I could go on a date, I had to let the world know that I wasn't Mr. Courtship anymore. Because uh, one of the precepts of courtship is that it's for the purpose of marriage. So if you want to mm-hmm. get coffee with somebody, it's for the purpose of marriage, which means you don't want to ask and no one ever wants to say yes. And I right. wanted to get coffee with some young <laughs> women because I was ready to get married. So I'm like, I'm going to write a blog post. And I'm going to reveal to the world why I changed my thinking. Because I talked with my grandmother and she was like, Back in my day, we did it better. And I actually listened after eight years of blowing her off and realized that they really did do it better back in her day. So I wrote a blog post all about that and uh, shared it with my friends. Mm-hmm. And they shared it with their friends and they shared it with their friends. And within about three weeks, three to four weeks, a million people had read the wow. blog post all over the world, except in North Korea. I think oh. they blocked me there. <laughs> Uh, so not quite the whole world, uh, but I feel like if you can get everywhere but North Korea, you're doing yeah, pretty good. You're doing okay. Yeah. And a lot of people asked me to write a book about the blog post because they wanted a response to I Kiss Dating Goodbye. And I was like, oh, I don't want to write a book. I work with authors. I know how much work it is to write a book. Uh, but after a Catholic priest asked me to do it, and I'm not a Catholic, but I'm like, well, gosh, if a Catholic priest wants me to do it, I should probably listen. Uh, and a bunch of other people. Mm-hmm. I was like, fine, I'll put the book on Kickstarter. And if you raise $10,000, then I'll write the book. Mm-hmm. And so I put the book on Kickstarter and my blog subscribers raised $10,000. Wow. <laughs> so like, okay. Amazing. Yeah. I guess I'll write the book now. <laughs> so I wrote the book and it's uh, the name of the book is Courtship in Crisis. And I'd like to think that it's really changed the conversation around courtship. I really debunk um, the two big myths about courtship. One is that it's the traditional way that it's already been, always been done. I share 4,000 mm-hmm. years of history of dating and relationships and mm-hmm. courting and the what we call a courtship never existed ever before. Yeah. <laughs> uh, and then I also debunked that it's biblical when I, I yeah. go through the, the biblical account. And I think that's changed the, the discussion on that topic, uh, at that's least awesome. in the homeschool community. That's awesome. That's awesome. Well, tell us what you wish authors knew about what you did or do what you do. Yeah, tell um, us a I little think, bit about how you help authors. Yeah. You, you've changed to where you're more focused on helping authors now than writing nonfiction, right? That's right. So I don't, I, what I used to do is build websites. Mm-hmm. And um, I've, I didn't like being called the day after Christmas because somebody's website Ooh. needed work. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm on a family vacation. Uh, and being a web guy, there's this expectation that websites always work. And mm-hmm. so if you're a web guy, there's an expectation that you're always on call. And I wasn't getting paid enough for that. Right, right. <laughs> so, um, I started the process of, of pruning a lot of the activities uh, that I was doing. So I was spread really thin. I was being an agent. I was building websites. I was doing marketing consulting. I was running all of these groups and on these boards of directors. And I was meeting myself coming and going and going mm-hmm. crazy. And after I had a mental breakdown, I was like, I got to cut back. And mm-hmm. so I went through a really painful season of pruning where I I cut or sold most of what I was up to. And now my main focus is on education. Mm-hmm. And if there's one thing I want authors to know, it's that you need to start the education process on marketing and platform building uh, a lot sooner than you think. Right. The temptation is to put that off and write the book and then try to find an audience for the book. 
Mm-hmm. And that's just so tragically backwards. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and a lot of authors waste a lot of time with that. It's like making a shoe and then looking around the world for a foot to fit the shoe. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like, that's backwards. You have to start with the foot mm-hmm. and then you build a shoe for the foot. You have to start with your audience. You need to know who you're trying to reach and then write a book that they would actually want to read. And you need right. to be thinking about your reader from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. That's good. I, and I think that uh, before we got on, we were talking about how Sarah and I got our indie publishing education from podcast and I did. And I, before, I mean, like I sat on a book for a year to learn this business and to figure out who might, you know, build that platform and try to find my readers even before I put the book out. And I really think that that's the biggest reason that I've had any success at all is because of that. And, um, but that came from listening to the right people, you know, the, the people that are marketing minded and, and platform building minded. And I think that's just so smart. If you want to write a book that people want to read, you need to write the kind of book that people yeah. already want to read. Yes. <laughs> like yes. I'm going to go and change people into liking something they don't like already. And like changing somebody is hard. Changing yourself is hard. Like yes. for me to change myself, that's all I can maybe ever hope to do mm-hmm. to try to change somebody else from li- not liking heavy metal into liking heavy metal. I don't think I could do that with one single person. No, <laughs> so, not at uh, all. Yeah. Adapt yourself to what people yes. are wanting. I mean, that's yeah. not to say that you can't try to have influence and can't try to make a difference, but right. you need to, especially with fiction, if, mm-hmm. if you want the story mm-hmm. to resonate, you need to know what story is already going on in someone's heart so that your mm-hmm. story can be in harmony with that one. Right. right. Yeah. It's such a key concept and it's something that's so often overlooked because, you know, we ask a lot of people, you know, what do you wish you'd known? And so many times the answer is that they wrote a book that there was no market for. And if you're researching and finding out what's out there, then you can avoid that falling into that mistake. So mm-hmm. very, very difficult to do. Easy to yeah. say, difficult to do. <laughs> and, and often that first book is really, it's therapy. Mm-hmm. And it's for mm-hmm. teaching you how to write a book. Yeah. And I think another really common mistake, and one that I fell into, frankly, was being convinced that my first book was a masterpiece and really deserving oh, of yeah. the world's attention. <laughs> and it's like, no, it, it was, it was a book and it yeah. taught me how to write a book mm-hmm, and yeah. it is very happily living on my hard drive. And yes. even my wife has not read it. <laughs> That's funny. That's funny. Well, is there anything you wish you'd known or that you wish that you had known about working with authors? I wish I had appreciated the typical author's um, financial situation a little Mm -hmm. bit better uh, Mm -hmm. when I first got started. Uh, To give you an idea, I was the marketing director for a marketing firm that did websites for small businesses, small, medium-sized businesses. And our typical engagement, uh, the minimum was around $20,000. And the typical project for a client would be in the $50,000. Thirty to fifty thousand dollar range, and we had clients who were paying a hundred thousand dollars plus, mm-hmm. and that's kind of the low end of like professional websites. Mm-hmm. And I didn't realize that when I was starting my website company for authors, and we're like, "Why aren't we making money?" Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like we're selling a website for twenty five hundred dollars or for five thousand dollars, which for an author who doesn't have an income, but if yeah. you're first getting started, that's a, that's an insurmountable. Yeah, like fortune, mm-hmm. and they're expecting a Taj Mahal for five thousand right. dollars, and you're like, the, the five thousand dollars 
doesn't even get you a, an RV. <laughs> it's like, yeah. It's not a lot of money to hire right. professionals to do professional work for you right. in, the, in the tech space. And it took me a long time to realize that. There are authors who are already successful and they can mm-hmm. afford expensive websites and afford an expensive team to build their website. Uh, but I was trying to go after that just getting started author with a website package. And it was really hard to do that profitably. And I starved for years. Yeah. <laughs> you can really cheap website. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I just didn't realize it. And now what I've done, and I'm a lot happier and the authors I work with are a lot happier is that I teach them how to build the website themselves. The tools are a lot easier to use now. And I have a free course that teaches you how to build your own author website. And uh, that course has, has become very profitable for me. Not super profitable, but it brings in money because I recommend, you know, here's the WordPress theme I recommend. Here's the WordPress hosting I recommend. And people can sign up with my links or not. But enough mm-hmm. people who go through the course use my links where uh, I'm now making you know, money helping people build their own website. And it's more rewarding, too, because when you build your own website and edit your own website and you have more control yeah. over what it says and, and how you're expressed through it. And um, most of the people who went through that course have never thought that they could control their own piece of the internet. You know, mm-hmm. They've always sharecropped. The best they ever had was, you know, under the watchful gaze of Facebook or Twitter, you know, placing right. who can see what they say and to yeah. actually control your own piece, of, to own your own property and control your own mm-hmm. voice is very liberating. Yeah. And it's, yep. uh, I really enjoy helping yeah. authors with that. Oh, that's awesome. That's just fantastic because yeah, there are many, my son-in-law built mine for Christmas when you're, he's a, he um, does social media marketing. I mean, that's what, that's his business. He works for a PR company, but he did mine and it's beautiful and it's great. And I'm very happy with it, but it would have, I mean, it's the learning curve for me to then go in and start fixing things and changing things when I have a new book or whatever has been kind of big and it's not even, it's Squarespace. So it's not even hard, but you know, then again, I'm not that person. So uh, it would have been good to have him show me how to do it as opposed to just doing it for me. So I think that's great. Uh, what do you see authors doing that they do because they think they have to, but it isn't producing results? Well, that's easy. Social media. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> social media, social media. <laughs> I was a marketing director for a publishing company for a time. And while I was there, I increased sales by just under 500%. Mm-hmm. I was there for about two years. Mm-hmm. We saw 500% growth in those two years. So 250% wow. growth each year, you could say. Mm. And I was very data-driven. I was measuring what we were doing. And I experimented with all kinds of different stuff. And I did all these experiments on social media. Mm-hmm. And my big realization, and it blew my mind at the time, was that social media had no measurable impact on book sales. Mm. None. Mm-hmm. <laughs> We were doing, there's so many things that had a big difference. We could do something and it really moved the numbers. You'd have a a high rank on Amazon, meaning not very many sales on one day. You do the thing and the next day, you selling tons of copies. And I never once saw that on social media. And what it turns out is that social media is a really good place for celebrities to interact with the fans they already have. Right. But it is a terrible place to try to get fans in the first place, especially mm. now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in the very early days of social media, there were a handful of people who emerged as kind of C-list celebrities from social media. People mm-hmm. like I, Justine, somebody who wasn't anyone before, mm-hmm. she became a celebrity after. But even I, Justine, 
didn't become a celebrity because of social media. She became a celebrity because of video. Mm-hmm. <laughs> she was actually mm-hmm. creating content. And social media alone just doesn't get you there. And there are so many authors who are, they're a part of a dozen Facebook groups for authors or hundreds of Facebook groups for authors right. in some cases. And they feel like that's helping them. Mm-hmm. When in reality, it's getting a bunch of bad advice from people who don't know mm-hmm. what they're talking about. And some good advice, but it's all mixed in together. But most right. importantly, it's distracting you from the things that would help, which are right. reading books mm-hmm. on craft and marketing mm-hmm. and writing your own book. <laughs> like if you just <laughs> turned Facebook off and took that same time and energy and read some craft books, mm-hmm. you know, read from people who actually knew what they're talking about, you know, well-reviewed, well-respected craft books, and then spent time on your word processor typing, you're going to get so much better, so much faster. Right. And uh, I've seen incredible results with authors who we were able to break that uh, Mm -hmm. social media addiction and redirect that time and energy somewhere else Mm. because it's so expensive. That time you'll live the rest of your life and die and never get back the time you spent on Facebook. Yeah. Yeah. Or TikTok. (laughs) Or YouTube. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 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 Well, that's music to my ears because I enjoy some like I like Instagram, but I would just rather spend my time in other places besides Facebook and Twitter. But there is a um, almost a pressure to have the accounts and to be set up and to be present. And I think most of the time it's coming from either other authors or publishing houses that don't understand that that's really not that beneficial. So, mm-hmm. yeah. It's if a publishing good. house doesn't understand that it's not that beneficial, you don't want them as a partner. Yeah. <laughs> and what's yeah. the secret to doubles tennis? It's having a good partner. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And if yeah. you want to have Serena Williams as your partner, you need to be Venus Williams or, mm-hmm. or as good or better than Venus mm-hmm. Williams. And right. there are a lot of publishing houses out there that are not very good and they're not very yeah. savvy and they really hold the author back. And that author would be better off any publishing and just mm-hmm. doing the stuff that works. And when you indie publish, you get your own numbers get your own yeah. sales dashboard in real time so you can do marketing efforts and then see if they work or not. Mm-hmm. Because for a lot of traditionally published authors, they're following marketing superstitions that they've never tested and no one's ever tested. And they're repeated right. uh, from person yeah. to person. And it's this urban myth like that you can see the Great Wall of China from space. That's right. not true. You right. can see the Great Wall of China from space. You could see every highway from space. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but I heard it somewhere, so it must be true. It must be it's true. Like, no, yeah, it's just a myth. Yeah. It's a total myth. Yeah. I know. And like right now on TikTok, there are a handful of authors that have gone viral with their, you know, book things they've done, and and then those books have, you know, hit the top twenty, top ten. I mean, it's been kind of crazy, but it's just this few. It's just a few, and the rest of us are just chasing that, like. It could be us, but it really probably isn't because in my Facebook group, I can ask people like, you know, what'd your dog do today? And I'll have 400 comments. And then I ask something about books or my book and I'll have 80 and it's like, okay, something's wrong here. And if you look at those books relate to people as opposed to trying to sell books because, you know. And if you look at the books that are blowing up on TikTok, they're not blowing up because of anything the author did. In fact, uh, I was reading one account. The author had no idea why he was suddenly in the top 10 again on Amazon. Mm -hmm. And he's like, his publisher didn't know and he didn't know. And it turned out that a book talker had featured his book and then a bunch of other book talkers had gotten it and they had featured his book, but it was totally organic. So the the people that are driving the numbers on TikTok 
almost exclusively. There may be a few authors who have cracked it, but I have not actually seen a single author who's doing it. Mm-hmm. What I've seen is that it's a reader-driven, mm-hmm. um, where the readers are curating, and there's these mm-hmm. celebrity book talkers, and there's a whole book talk community. Yeah. And you probably, if you, if you wanted a TikTok strategy, I can give you the TikTok strategy mm-hmm. right here, <laughs> and it is to delete TikTok, hire <laughs> the book talkers that are popular. Yeah. Okay, keep TikTok to, to be a search it. Yeah. Find who's already popular. Hire them. They probably these are you know, eighteen year old kids, twenty two year old college students who are broke, and you're like, mm-hmm. hey, can I give you a hundred dollars to feature my book? And they're like, a hundred dollars. The top yeah. ones won't talk to you for that money. Right? The right. top ones are getting thousands or tens of thousands of dollars yeah. to, for yeah. sponsored posts. But there's this huge middle class of book talkers who are getting nothing, mm-hmm. and a hundred dollars for them is a lot of Wendy's. Mm-hmm. <laughs> They'll yeah. be happy to feature your book. <laughs> <laughs> and and so instead of trying to build your own platform and become right. a, a TikTok influencer, you just hire the TikTok influencers. And That's you'll notice really this smart, is what most yeah. of the brands are doing. Yeah. Yeah. Super That's smart. Because then once, if you try and build your own brand, then you've got to maintain it if you're trying to be the influencer. And that's <sighs> just more time away from writing. It's exhausting. So, yeah. 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 Especially video-based content like YouTube, when you have to do something on a schedule or else you kind of fall off the algorithm. So right. And so you have to be be- beautiful. Video-based yeah. content is really yeah. based off of how pretty you are. And that's a lot of work, right? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's why this you is see a 30-second TikTok, <laughs> what you're not seeing is the hour that they spent doing makeup, unless right. the 30-second TikTok is a summary of the hour they spent doing makeup. That's right. And yes. that's why this podcast is always audio only, because we <laughs> want to deal with that. <laughs> Uh, yeah. so that's, that's so a common true. that's a common mistakes uh that you see authors making are there any others that you see any common mistakes that you see that um you would advise authors not to spend their time doing one is not looking at the numbers um a lot of traditional authors don't even ask it is technically possible as a traditional author to get an author dashboard from your publisher that shows you real time or near real time. Oh, really? Numbers. Yeah. Hmm. I talked, I've talked with the software vendors who make the royalty management systems and mm-hmm. it's a feature that the publisher can either turn on or turn off if they're right with the right software vendor. Mm-hmm. And in most cases they won't because they don't want you to know what a poor job they're doing with your book. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but in some cases they can, you just have to ask for it. Right. But if you're an indie author, a lot of indie authors um, treat themselves as if they're a traditional author and they never look at the dashboard. It's like, what's the point of having this beautiful dashboard of how your books are selling if you're not right. going to look at it, if you're not going right. to track it? Uh, or the, the really tragic, which is going with a hybrid publisher where oh, you're still yeah. paying the money, but you don't get the dashboard. So you're getting right. all the downsides of being traditionally published and all the downsides of being independently published. It's mm-hmm. just tragic. It's like, mm-hmm. it's not your KDP. It, you're not independently published, in my Mm-mm. opinion, because that data is so important. And yes. there are so many people who would love to take part of the money mm-hmm. and cover up the windshield so that you mm-hmm. can't see where you're going. And mm-hmm. you just need to say no to all of those people mm-hmm. <laughs> and insist on having your own numbers. And then uh, another common mistake that I see with indie authors is um, missing out on the details, particularly with how the book is packaged. So mm-hmm. uh, the elements on the cover are there are elements that are missing that make it really obviously self-published, right? Like it's missing mm-hmm. the U S and Canadian price, or it's missing the shelving instructions, mm-hmm. little details like that. Aren't a lot of work. You just get them right the first time. And it really makes a difference or uh, putting too many symbols on the cover. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I want the cover to express my book and capture the essence of my book. 
No, you don't. You want the book to the cover to sell your book. Yes, right. <laughs> you know, this isn't an essay. This isn't a summary uh, or a review of your book. It's a it's a marketing piece. It's more like a a box of cereal than it is like a a fine uh, painting. And right. a lot of uh, indie authors approach their cover like it's a a fine painting, uh, when really they need to be trying to sell boxes off the shelf. Mm-hmm. And uh, so I think that really hurts them. And the final big mistake I see India is making is uh, not taking advantage of the back matter, like those pages mm-hmm. at the back of your book. Mm-hmm. Great opportunity to get yep. people on your email list. Mm-hmm. Great opportunity to sell your next book. As an indie author, you can go back. So let's say you just published a third book in your trilogy. Go back to your first book. Edit the EPUB and put in a link <laughs> and a cover, maybe a sample chapter, sending somebody to the second book. And edit the second book and send somebody to the third book. It's not a lot of work. You do it one time. And now every time you sell that first book, it's got a commercial for the next book to people who want to read the second book. If I get to the end of your book, I want a button where I just tap to buy the next copy. It's a shut up and take my money moment. So take their money. Right. I think that that is one area that indie authors should, formatting is one area that indie authors should not give over to somebody else. So vellum is expensive. I like, I mean, I love it and I'll use it forever, but um, I don't necessarily always recommend that to people because it is, it costs money, but there are free formatting things that you can do. And if you can format your own book, then you can go in and change your back matter anytime you want to, depending on somebody else to do that is hard. And then they'll charge you for it sometimes. So that to me, I'm like, try figure out how to format your own book because it really does help if you can go in and change that back matter. Yeah. I think it's important to spend money for quality, especially when it comes to your book. And mm-hmm. when deciding what to spend money on, you need to think about your time as being valuable. Right. And so let's say you're trying to decide between caliber and vellum. Mm-hmm. In vellum, you can format your book in 30 minutes. And in caliber, it'll take you 10 hours to learn it. And then every subsequent book, it'll take you two hours to format it. Yeah. Vellum is cheaper than caliber, mm-hmm. even though caliber is free, because mm-hmm. your time, you'll never right. make more time, right. you will make more money. And I do agree, though, when it comes to formatting, if you do hire somebody, and I'm not against hiring somebody mm-hmm. to make it look pretty. But hire somebody who's using Vellum and insist that they give you the Vellum file when they're done so that when it comes time for you to make that change or somebody's like, hey, there's a typo on page 72, you're missing a comma, you can just click, click, pull up 72, drop in the comma and fix it instead of having to call somebody or pay 50 bucks and do this big hassle. Uh, And the more control you have over your own book, the more you can take advantage of the innovative kind of indie only marketing tactics. Yeah. Yeah. That's great. Uh so assuming that an author has, you know, not made the mistakes that we've just talked about, what are some of the commonalities in writers who've been successful over the long haul? Um, I would probably say humility and persistence. Mm-hmm. Humility in that they maintain a teachable spirit. Yeah. And I see this as being a particular challenge with Christian authors because mm-hmm. a lot of Christian authors I feel that they've been called by God. And Mm -hmm. they feel that because they're called by God, that they're special and that they don't have to work hard and they they don't have to learn. Mm -hmm. And that is not true. That's bad theology, right? (laughs) Just (laughs) because God gave the promised land to the Israelites didn't mean they didn't have to work to take the promised land, right? Every single city they had to to capture and every single acre they had to claim. Yeah. And uh, our, what we sow, we will also reap. 
And if God calls you to sow, that doesn't mean that you then don't have to sow. Like it's totally messed mm-hmm. up theology. And, uh, but I can't tell you how many Christian authors I've, I have tried to point out like reasons why the book wasn't going to sell. And they're like, nope, God called me to do this. I don't have to listen to you. And then their book doesn't sell. Uh, and sometimes then they blame me. And I'm like, you didn't even take my advice. Right. Exactly. <laughs> like, <don't> me. <laughs> so the humility is important. And, and that teachable uh, spirit is important. Uh, the second thing, though, is persistence. Mm-hmm. We expect quick results. Mm-hmm. Or um, we get desperate. We're like, oh, I'm getting old. You know, I'm going <laughs> to die soon. I need to start taking shortcuts. And that's the longest, slowest path. It's like, no, don't use that as an excuse. You need to, to learn what you need to learn. You need to do the work. And right. persisting past those diffi- that difficult time. Because when you get your first round of edits back on your first book, you're going to realize that you're not as good of a writer as you thought you were. Mm-hmm. Uh, none of us are. Yeah. <laughs> that first round of edits is rough. And you know what? Your 50th round of edits is still rough because you're still not as good as you thought you were. We all need an editor. We all need to work. And it takes work, right? The thorns and thistles require work to clear. And and mm-hmm. it's nothing is stopping that. And so, it, you know, we got to hunker down. We got to work hard. Right. And if you're willing to do that, the results do come in time. Mm-hmm. That's great. Yeah. yeah. Very true. Great advice. Yeah. Well, we, we both were listening to your podcast for a while. And we had both listened to the same podcast. And it was on scarcity and ubiquity. And we, we, Jamie and I meet up for lunch and I was like, I listened to this great podcast and it was about scarcity and ubiquity. And Jamie said, oh, I did too. And so we really wanted to talk to you about scarcity and ubiquity because it's something that's not really discussed in author, author land, but it's really powerful. So can you just give us a quick little encapsulate like how authors could use each thing? And then we'll link to your podcast in the show notes for the whole full explanation. Yes, there's a paradox that economists and philosophers have been puzzling over for thousands of years. Mm-hmm. And it's what's called the diamond water paradox. Mm-hmm. Why are diamonds expensive and why is water cheap? <laughs> like you can live your whole life, you can live a very happily, happy and fulfilled life without ever encountering a diamond, without ever owning a diamond, and uh, live a happy life without a diamond. But you can't live hardly any time at all without water. Right. It's like water is really important. Uh, and it's important on like six different dimensions, right? It's not just for um, drinking, it's also for mm-hmm. cleaning and it's for cooking and it's for right. planting. Like water is essential for life. And yet, water is cheap. Why is that? And it has to do with ubiquity and scarcity. Mm-hmm. Uh, this is a summary of thousands of years of political <laughs> philosophy. So, if any of you took a philosophy class, you can listen to my episode for a deeper. Uh, Mm -hmm. exploration, but even that's kind of a a quick summary. But um, diamonds are scarce, and that scarcity is what gives them value. Mm -hmm. And uh, we talk about this in business uh, with this concept of supply and demand. So Mm -hmm. how much supply of something uh, dictates how valuable it is, but also the demand. There are very rare resources that aren't as expensive as you would think because there's not a lot of demand for them. In fact, Mm -hmm. there are some precious stones that are rarer than diamonds and yet cheaper because there isn't a tradition of getting that precious stone uh, for an engagement, right? Every married, every engaged woman expects a diamond um, because she's been conditioned through very effective marketing uh, to expect a diamond. (laughs) So (laughs) uh, the the price of diamonds has been driven through manipulation of both supply uh, and demand. Uh, So the question is, so how does this apply to authors? Well, the two ways to make money typically 
are either with something that is scarce and very valuable or with something that's ubiquitous. If everybody is reading your book, there's a lot of money that can be made uh, doing that. But you can also make a lot of money selling limited edition, rare copies of your book. And Mm -hmm. a good example of this is Brandon Sanderson. So he wrote the, I believe it was a New York Times bestselling book, The Way of Kings, which is a masterpiece. I loved it. Changed my life. (laughs) And 10 years later, he did a uh, limited edition Kickstarter, uh, hardback, leather-bound copy of this book, 10th anniversary edition. And he sold it for $250 a copy. And he sold 20,000 units of his $250 Oh my gosh. Book. I got it right behind me. I was one of those <laughs> suckers. I was like, shut up and take my money. I would love a rare signed by Brandon Sanderson edition hardback of this book. And he made $6 million off the limited edition print run. Wow. Potentially more. Uh, in fact, almost guaranteed more than he made in his advance uh, mm-hmm. on the ubiquitous version. Now, the ubiquitous version helped drive demand for the scarce mm-hmm. version, right? To have 20,000 people being willing to spend $250 for a book they've already read. Mm-hmm. Uh, you need to have millions of people who've read that book and you know, it changed their lives too. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they really loved it. Mm-hmm. And, and so a lot of authors only think about the ubiquity part of the equation. They're only thinking about how to get their book everywhere. Mm-hmm. And they leave a lot of money on the table by not creating rare collectible versions of their book. And uh, one of the things that I started recommending is a technique from uh, the art world, which is where you don't just sign books, but you have a signed and numbered edition of your book. So there are three ways that people buy art right? mm-hmm. to put them in big categories, right? You can buy the original millions of dollars. Or you can buy a print or like buy it in a, in a, like a book of prints where it's really, really cheap. And then you can buy, there's this version in the middle called a signed lithograph where the artist will have a hundred or a few hundred, sometimes a few thousand mm-hmm. signed copies of official copies of the original and he'll number them or she'll number them. So this is mm-hmm. 27 out of 150. And it's the only 27 out of 150 that exists. So there, there's something in between the $10 copy and the million dollar copy, right? Mm-hmm. Now there's the $10,000 copy of the painting. Mm-hmm. And that is a technique that authors can take advantage of. In fact, it's the technique that Brandon Sanderson took advantage of. So one of the more expensive versions of his Kickstarter campaign was actually assigned and numbered print. And mm-hmm. you paid more to have that numbered version. And I, I've worked with authors who've used, who are just getting started who use this technique to raise a lot of money. <laughs> uh, there's a, a book behind me that was on Kickstarter, first time novelist. He'd written some short stories before that. But this was his first full length novel. He did a mm-hmm. signed and numbered book, sold it for $100 a copy, and was able to raise several thousand dollars for his unpublished book on Kickstarter. And I wow. backed it. I've got a signed and numbered copy. And if yeah. he becomes a famous author, this is going to be very valuable because he didn't make a whole lot of them. It's very yes. scarce. And mm-hmm. having both diamonds and water is better than having either diamonds or water. Right. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I thought that was so interesting because we talk a lot about being everywhere, being, you know, reaching people, especially with ebooks. It's you can reach so many more people than, you know, even 10 years ago. But we don't talk a lot about scarcity. So I just think that's an interesting concept. And I put it into practice after the podcast. I did a hardback edition and I, I saw another uh, 
special edition from another company that they were doing special um, end pages. And I was like, I could do something like that. And I, my, it was a Christmas book. I put, I stamped hand stamped snowflakes on the end and numbered them and mailed them out and sold them. So it was a learning experience. I learned a ton about selling physical copies that I didn't know, but I mean, it is a way that I think indie authors especially don't think about. We don't think about doing that for, mm-hmm. you know, another income stream. So I just thought it was very fascinating. It is. And that's one of the reasons I love your podcast, uh, the Novel Marketing Podcast, Thomas, because you do have, like, I had to really listen and get the context of ubiquity. I didn't know that. I didn't really know what that meant. And so I learn things all the time when I listen to your podcast. And there are things that we don't hear all the time. And I just love that. So speaking of, oh, you're welcome. But speaking of podcasts, the one I just listened to recently, which I really love, was the one on tips for finding readers. Um, There was so much good information in that podcast. But could you give our uh, listeners just a few of the tips or things to be thinking about? You kind of touched on it earlier about writing the book that readers want to read. But um, I I think that, that our listeners would really like to hear that. Yeah, so in that episode, I walked through kind of a five-step process uh, mm-hmm. to find your readers. I can give you the cliff notes of that if you'd like. Yes, yes. Uh, so the first step is to become a reader yourself. Mm-hmm. You can't write for a genre or a type of book that you're not reading. And again, this is where that humility comes in because you're like, I already know everything there is to know about my topic. Yes, yes. Give up now. You're going to fail. <laughs> it's like you don't know nearly as much. You don't even know what you don't know, and you're going to set yourself up to make a fool of yourself. Or right. another excuse I see authors use, uh, and they may not realize this is an excuse, but they're like, "Oh, well, I don't want to be derivative, so I don't want to read other people's books because then my books will be like them." Right. And that is really toxic thinking because the only way to not be derivative is to know what other people are saying. Otherwise, mm-hmm. you're going to accidentally stumble into being incredibly derivative and you don't even know it. So mm-hmm. everyone knows that you're derivative except for you. Mm-hmm. It's kind of like being the only person in the room to not know that you have bad breath. It's very <laughs> embarrassing. <laughs> so uh, you really need to be reading the books in your genre and especially the popular books in your genre. You need to understand why books are resonating for readers. You don't want to be the person writing a romance for people who don't like romance mm-hmm. because the people who you're selling to are the people who do like romance and they're not going to like your book and they're not going to like you condescending to them uh, saying that, uh, that you will when you don't even understand why they like what mm-hmm. they like. So that's the first step to read in your genre. Second step Yay! is to write for yourself. And this is not where you want to end up, but it is where you need to get started because it gives you a chance to work on the craft of writing, learn how to put together a good sentence, learn how to manage tension learn how to manage curiosity, right? These are really important things to manage as an author and uh, a little bit hard to learn. How do you set up tension? How do you make the reader curious about what's on the other side of that door? What's in the next chapter? How do you make a character compelling and interesting where reader wants to spend 100 or 200 pages with that character? And so learning how to thrill yourself is a part of that process, Mm -hmm. learning how to do it. Uh, But you don't want to spend too much time there. And ultimately, you want to get to step three, which is to write for your Timothy. Now, uh, I, this is a shift. You talk about things that I've learned the hard way working with mm-hmm. authors. I didn't used to recommend writing for your Timothy. I used to recommend uh, creating a persona, 
which is uh, right out of business school. I went to mm-hmm. business school and I t- taught and teach a lot of business school principles to authors. And I find that some business school principles need to be adapted a little bit. So let me explain mm-hmm. the business principle and why it doesn't work for authors. The business principle is we're going to create a customer persona, mm-hmm. a, a fictitious person who represents our customer. So the radio station K-Love has K-Love Kathy, who's their typical listener. And every DJ is instructed to uh, speak specifically to K-Love Kathy. She's 42 years old. She has three children. She lives in the suburbs. So that's who they're talking to. And that works well for a corporation, right? They can have a stock photo picture of K-Love Kathy, and everyone can talk about K-Love Kathy and how to make her happy. Problem is with novelists, especially both authors in general, is that they are too creative for their own good. And when you have them, when you ask them to create an imaginary person to use as a test to write for this imaginary person, they're able to imagine that person into loving everything that they write. Right. <laughs> it becomes right. basically they go back to writing for themselves. And often when you have them go through the persona exercise, they end up basically just describing themselves in generic terms. Like I am, you know, I'm writing for a, you know, 42 year old woman with three children. And you look at her and you're like, aren't you 42? And don't you have three kids? They're basically writing for themselves still. Um, Whereas writing for your Timothy uh, comes from uh, the book of Timothy, book in the Bible was written to just one guy named Timothy, but it's not just helpful for one guy. There's a reason why it's in the Bible and why uh, billions of people have found the book helpful uh, in their own personal uh, walks, the the religious practice, is that by having that focus, there's an intimacy and a specificity to that book that makes it uh, very easy to understand or easier to understand than, say, the book of Romans, which I feel like you have to go to college to understand. (laughs) So, um, Timothy is a real-life reader Mm -hmm. who's hopefully not a uh, family member, and but it can be in a pinch. A family member is still better than an imaginary friend, but it's somebody who you can give a sample of your book you can ask them questions. <laughs> you mm-hmm. can observe them, right? If you want to reach Timothy online or your Timothy or your Tamantha, watch what websites you hang out on, right? What um, types of books do you like to read? You want to read the same books that mm-hmm. your Timothy is reading and mm-hmm. watch the same movies that your Timothy uh, is reading. And so ultimately, Timothy is your first beta reader, but they're the like the red dot in the middle of the target. Mm-hmm. And by shooting for that red dot, dot helps you hit the center of the target. Obviously, you want more than one person to read your book, but mm-hmm. by focusing on thrilling the one, you can learn to thrill the many. Uh, and, yeah. And I find that's a very transformational act to, mm-hmm. to finally reach out of yourself as an author and write for an other. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Suddenly, as writing goes from a selfish activity to a selfless activity, it goes from a self-serving uh, activity to a serving activity and you really are starting to ask, well, how can I bless this person? And you start to realize, oh, this person is quirky and different. So I need to, to acknowledge that in my in my writing. And then finally, the um, fourth step is researching the market. Right? So you can't just write for this one person. Ultimately, you want to write for a market in general. And I talk about some tools to use for market research. Uh, the two that I, that I recommend are Kalytics and Publisher Rocket. And that mm-hmm. allows you to get kind of big data. But ultimately, that's actually not even where you want to end up. What I recommend ultimately is to just, once you get enough fans, you write for your fans. If you can thrill your fans, they'll go out and find you more fans. Once you have 5,000, 10,000 loyal readers, and some say even a thousand, you have a thousand true fans. That's really all you need. You can thrill your thousand true fans. They'll find more 
they'll buy your stuff and they'll keep you and your family uh, well fed. Yes. And then it's just a matter of thrilling them. So you may, you may make the whole world hate you, but if you can keep your fans loving you and buying your books, that's all that matters. Right. Right. It was such a good episode for me and timely because I had been thinking because while I, I write romance and I do write sex on the page, my romances in general are sweeter. You know, I mean, it's a it's small town. It's very family friend focused. Not that other romance authors aren't, but there are romance authors that are more successful than me that I was thinking. I started thinking, do I need to change this? Do I need to do this? But then I, when I heard your episode, I was like, no, this is what my readers love. They and they say it in the reviews and other things. So I that's where I need to keep my focus and not looking other places. So it was very good interview. Uh, I mean, podcast. I really just enjoyed it so much. Yeah, knowing whose advice that you can ignore yes. is so helpful. Yes, <laughs> because you can't thrill everyone. Yes, uh, you yes. can make everyone mad at you. Uh, oh yeah. <laughs> Um, although even that is hard. It's hard to make everyone mad at you. There are people who are still fans of Bill Cosby, for instance. Mm -hmm. Um, but it is, it is, you can't thrill everyone. And, and so knowing who you are trying to thrill allows you to kind of identify kind of who's the haters, who are the outside folks who are just throwing stones. And it's like, you would never like what I was writing. You, you, you disliked me before you even knew me because I Mm -hmm. represented something to you that, is painful or that you dislike or politically you're, we're never going to see eye to eye. And so right. I'm giving myself permission to ignore your feedback. Right. Right. <laughs> uh, well, okay. somebody else, you're like, you're dead center in my target demographic. I need to listen to you. You're exactly. my Timothy. Why, why did you dislike my book? Oh, I had no idea that character rubbed you the wrong way. Help me understand. Mm-hmm. And it's um, uh, very helpful in that way. That's yeah. great. Yeah. And it helps too with like filtering. Like I had to learn to filter advice from other writers and, I also, it also helps filter reviews because sometimes like when you first start out, every bad review hurts, but if you can figure out, oh, this book wasn't for this person, even though they read it, it may be a bad review. And then there are some bad reviews that are right on target that help you learn and refine your craft. But yeah. But those hurt. They all hurt. If I know they have a little bit of truth in them, I'm like, "Mm, that one hurt. It's true. And uh, one of the things to talk about in that episode is that when a reader reviews your book, more than telling you about your book or you, they're really talking about themselves. Uh, And I did a statistical analysis on Mm -hmm. all of the reviews for my book. And the word I was the most common used word other than like the and. And and so once you realize that, which makes mm-hmm. sense, right? You walk yeah. into a crowded room, you're like, everyone's thinking about me and what I'm dressed mm-hmm. and, and they're all thinking about themselves and how they're dressed, right? right. It's like right. No right. one's thinking about you nearly as much as you think they are. And once you realize that applies to your reviews, it becomes way less painful to read your reviews because mm-hmm. you realize, mm-hmm. oh, you're describing you. This really hateful, angry troll, they are describing a very hateful, angry person that's mm-hmm. themselves, right? Mm-hmm. All the stuff that they're saying about me, they're describing themselves. They can't see past their own nose. And yes. they... And it allows you to have pity mm-hmm. uh, for that person. And nothing takes away the pain of someone's comments and having pity for the person who's attacking mm-hmm. you mm-hmm. Yeah. And, uh, it, yeah. and empathy even. Yeah. It kind of take, it takes the sting out of it. It really does. It took me right. a long time to figure that out, that sometimes the reviews are more about the person who's written them than about me or my writing. So, so anyway, switching gears just a little bit, we wanted to also ask you 
um, since you work with so many writers and authors, um, just about trends in publishing. Um, do you see any trends um, either in publishing in general or maybe specifically in the inspirational market? You work with a lot of authors that write inspirational. Um, do you see anything that is on the horizon that... Uh, yeah, the in the inspirational market, the most interesting trend. This actually kind of applies across the board. Um, amongst four of the five big publishers, mm -hmm. there's been a conscious decision to not publish uh, like outspoken conservative voices, uh, especially to sign new contracts. Mm -hmm. So a lot of the conservative authors who are getting published, it's only because they had signed like a two or three book deal, mm -hmm. and they're unlikely going to get renewed. And there's been a lot of buzz about this in the industry because what's happening is that new publishers that are not in the big five are publishing these books by people who are able to say, I got canceled and they're like, go on Fox News and they get all this attention. And it's um, potentially going to create some new big publishers because the readership is still split, right? We mm -hmm. are in a divided country mm -hmm. and there are a lot of people who want to read progressive books. And there's a lot of people who want to read uh, conservative books and the big publishers making a conscious choice to only serve half the market is opening up the other half of the market to new players, which is mm -hmm. a really interesting trend because up to this point, the big seven were the big six and then the big five, they're kind of gobbling each other up and consolidating. And now we may see a deconsolidation. And also a bifurcation, so, so mm -hmm. big words. But deconsolidation means there's more players than there were before. Mm -hmm. Bifurcation means that you start to see the market split into two, mm -hmm. uh, where you got the red, red team and the blue team, which is really kind of sad. Um, but not something that we haven't seen before in history. Uh, if you go to the UK, you can get the uh, red uh, newspaper, or you can get the blue newspaper, or you can get the green newspaper. Mm -hmm. <laughs> so the colors I'm just using as an example, but I remember boarding at British Airways uh, playing. They had the three newspapers there and they were supposedly, according to the flight attendant, attached to the three political parties over there. <laughs> so wow. uh, you can pick whose who's voice you want to hear and they hold each other accountable or supposedly they do. Um, and so that's trickling into the inspirational market because some of the biggest um, Christian publishers are actually just HarperCollins uh, or, or one of the other big companies that own them as a subsidiary. Mm -hmm. um, so that that's kind of the most interesting thing that I'm watching and I, I realize this is a little political but it does affect you know people are really looking for their politics to be expressed in their book and they don't want to read a book that will challenge their worldview mm -hmm. on both sides right mm -hmm. <laughs> i not, uh, i'm throwing stones at both sides here nobody wants to hear what the other side has yeah, to say no you're right and um and I think that's a little bit unfortunate. It also makes it harder as an author because you're it's like, you know, know your reader. Part of that means knowing which faction. Mm -hmm. So in the United States, when it comes to readers, there's the left, there's the right. And then there's the don't talk to me about politics mm -hmm. faction who are really right. like anti both other sides. They're like, mm -hmm. I don't want to talk about politics. I don't want my book to preach to me. And there's been a big pushback because um, some people really want their movies to be preachier, right? You didn't take a hard enough stand on such and such issue. Right. And there's other people who are like, I just want to watch aliens and robots blowing each other up, but I don't want a sermon. <laughs> like, yeah. Why does there have to be a sermon at the end of the uh, end of the movie? Or why does it have to be a sermon at the end of the book? Right. Uh, and this is, I think Christian writers, you know, have been struggling with for a long time in the inspirational is like, you know, because they want to have it have themes and religious messages, but you know, they also don't want to just be this didactic sermon the whole time. Uh, right. So 
there's a lot of other trends. We're in the midst of a generational shift uh, mm-hmm. where what people are wanting is shifting a little bit. Young people no longer see themselves as the chosen one. Um, so all the millennials, we were all convinced we were the chosen one. We were special. And we really resonated with books like Harry Potter, where you've got this child who's the chosen one from of old, <laughs> has the magical item or the calling or the magical parents, then they're going to be the ones to fix the world. Mm-hmm. And uh, the new YA readers, especially the middle grade, they're more pragmatic, they're more practical, and they don't believe that nonsense. <laughs> they're not convinced <laughs> they're nearly that special. Um, and so it'll be interesting to see what kinds of books resonate with them. Because right now, the YA genre has been hijacked. It's mm-hmm. middle-aged women writing books for middle-aged women to read. Mm-hmm. And it's not actually for young adults. It's not young adult voices. And it's not for young adult readers. Um, mm-hmm. So I think there's, there's going to be a big shakeup uh, there. I think Harry Potter will continue to be popular. I feel mm-hmm. like it's it's a classic. So mm-hmm. classics are able to appeal to multiple generations. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I don't think we're going to see as many chosen one stories resonating with young people mm-hmm. moving forward. But maybe, the future maybe is more group see. group, like we're all going to come together and save the world as opposed to a single chosen one. But maybe or maybe nice. not even saving the world. Yeah, no, um, we're just going to survive. Yeah. <laughs> The uh, the stakes are so high. Like yeah. it used to be, Spider Man fought crime. Yes. Right. Batman fought crime, and now they fight interdimensional aliens that are going to blow up the whole planet. Right. Like yes, the stakes true. keep getting bigger and bigger. Yeah. Eventually, they can't get bigger. Right. Mm-hmm. Like after you've killed half of all living creatures in the universe. Yeah. You can't get bigger than. Well, I guess you can. We're going to have multiverses now. Yes. So exactly. People yeah. in more universes, but eventually <laughs> we'll hit yeah. a point. Where the stakes can't get bigger and they'll, they'll get smaller again. Yeah. 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 It's a pendulum. You know, they'll mm-hmm. start, it goes so far one way and then it comes back the other. So, yes, I agree. That's and mark great. my words, watch the superheroes. Once you see them fighting crime again, that's when you know. Okay. <laughs> we've, we've gone all the way back. We've gone the other way. <laughs> <laughs> well, this has been so great, Thomas. Tell people where they can find you, all the things you offer authors. We want to know all about it. So authormedia.com is the mm-hmm. place to go. Uh, that site has the Novel Marketing Podcast that you sub- can subscribe to. It's got all of my courses, including the free one on building author websites. So if you want to go through that course and learn how to build your own website, you can find it at authormedia.com. And we've recently launched um, authormedia.social, which is a community for authors uh, off of Facebook. So if you want to gather <laughs> with authors and get encouragement and advice, uh, but without the little red circles uh, pulling you into a political fight with your uncle, yeah. uh, the, we have that community. And uh, that's been really fun. Uh, I now go there before every episode and ask some kind of question that informs my episode. And it's uh, helped me stay uh, really more in touch with what my listeners are wanting me to talk about in my episodes. Yeah. And um, it's a fun community. And right now it's free. Uh, And if you join while it's free, it'll always be free for you. Mm -hmm. I'm not promising those of you listening in the future, it might not be free for you, but those of you listening when this episode comes out, you can join for free and it will always be free. That's great. And you offer masterminds too, right? I do. For students who go through our our bigger courses and they're wanting uh, additional help, I have um, uh, several different mastermind groups that I host. Well, that's great. Thank you for being here. It's just been so fun and so good. I, I just know that people are going to get a lot out of it. I've gotten a lot out of it. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you for having me. This has been fun for me as well. Yeah.
Yeah. And we'll have all the links at wishidknownthenpodcast.com. And thanks to Alexa Larberg for editing and producing the podcast. And thanks for talking to us today. Bye. Thanks for listening to the Wish I'd Known Then podcast. We hope this episode inspired you, empowered you, and made you laugh a little bit too. If you loved it, tell your friends about it. And if you feel so inclined, leave us a review. We look forward to being with you again next week.